we've been in this series in Mark, and we said for Lent we're going to be watching Jesus um, and, and watch just how different he is than us and the decisions he makes and how different they are. We left off at, uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 5, and it picks up in verse 6, and go the, the next uh, section goes all the way to chapter 7, verse 23. And uh, I can't read all that um, today. That's almost two chapters. But I'm going to read a portion of it for you um, from chapter 7. Okay? And so we're going to be in chapter 7, verse 5. And for the sake of time, I'm going to be jumping a little bit. So, um, but if you have your Bibles with you, please open it. I want to encourage you, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, when you come on Sunday mornings, back next to Jim back here on the table there, underneath a, uh, a, a sweatshirt, are um, some... <laughs> some Bibles. And um, please, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. If you don't have one, grab one and take it home. You need a Bible. You know, this is God's Word. And I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. And when we walk through it, uh, discipline yourself to have to look it up. It keeps us knowing where things are in the Scripture. And we put them on the screen because it's easy to see and we can all kind of look up. But we debate that sometimes because we don't want people to get out of the habit of using their Bibles either. So uh, please be sure to be bringing your Bibles and take one if you don't have one. Now look at me going off wasting time already. (laughs) Chapter 7, verse 5, you can stand with me in honor of God's Word. So verse 5, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right. When he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. For the next few verses, Jesus gives them an example of that. We're going to bump forward to verse 14. Again, uh, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. I love this line right here. Are you so dull? He asked. Is Jesus allowed to say that? I guess so. Don't you see that nothing enters a man from the outside, from Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these things come from inside and make a man unclean. Blessed be God's word. You can have a seat. Now, uh, like we said, we're not dealing with Jesus' teachings and how they apply to our lives right now. And that's really unfortunate because everything we just read is Jesus' teachings. And I would love to just take those teachings and talk about how they apply to our lives because, man, do those teachings apply to our lives. But fortunately, Jesus was a a holistic educator, well-rounded communicator. And so what happens is, is this whole 
chunk of Scripture is stories about how Jesus and his disciples are living their life. And at the bookend of it, this teaching we just heard kind of summarizes in some way all of the ways that they've just been living. And so we're not going to be able to focus on his teaching and figure out how that integrates with our lives, but we are going to be able to watch him and see this teaching personified in a person. Okay? So um, image management, momentum management, massive industry in the States right now. How to manage your image. It's called branding. You've heard of branding. You brand a, a company. You, you brand a name. There's a colossal mistake in branding on a, uh, from, a, uh, from a, a, a professional athlete last year. Anyone know who that was? LeBron James. Just a, a, yeah, a absolute monstrosity of a, of a PR mistake. And this guy who was trying to brand his name and he was one of the most loved athletes in the world and then overnight he became a hated athlete because he took a whole hour of national television in order to make a decision and there's all sorts of people sitting around and it just came off so arrogant it was ridiculous. And he was always known as like the humble guy who would just play. And a little mistake and all of a sudden it, it wasn't even really about who this guy is, it's about how his image was portrayed that changed. Branding is all about portraying your image. You know, uh, my family and I went to the uh, Owen J. Roberts uh, School Musical yesterday, and uh, it was so much fun, man. They were doing uh, Beauty and the Beast, and our very own Robert uh, Swall, did he just have to step out? He just ran off because they're about to do another show. He was playing drums here this morning, uh, and he's LeFou, you know, uh, who is in Beauty and the Beast. You know who the big image-driven guy is in that? Gaston. And it's like no one hits like Gaston, no one spits like Gaston, no one's got a neck quite as incredibly thick as Gaston, and no one sings quite as many refrains as Gaston. And, you know, they, they go on and on and on. And LeFou is his sidekick who flatters him and also gives him cheap shots all the time. And that's what Robert masterf masterfully plays. And uh, it's great. And the whole show was wonderful. And, you know, Gaston, it's this perfect portrayal of someone dealing with image management and branding. You know, it's big, tough Gaston who everyone wants to be like until he goes and asks Belle to marry her and she turns him down for flat, and all of a sudden, this guy's world is rocked, not because he loved the girl, but because all of a sudden it messed with his image, you know? And, and the story, uh, that, that's a big part of the story. Image management is a big, big deal. It's a huge deal. And part of what is so essential about in, image management is at the right moment, when the momentum's moving, being able to jump on the momentum and ride that train and know how to use it for all it's worth. That's the idea. That's the idea of image, image management. Wherever the momentum's going, you jump on it and take it so that people will follow. That's the idea. That's what branding and image management's all about. Do you think Jesus cared about image? He cared deeply about image. Sometimes we associate image with vanity. But there's all sorts of things about image that aren't vanity. Image is communication. And Jesus cared deeply about communication. He watched every word and every phrase he said, and he, and he picked them out precisely and perfectly. Everything that he did, he knew what he was doing, and he did it intentionally because he wanted people to know and to see the reality of what it is that he was trying to portray. And so he watched everything carefully. But 
Branding is full of agents and consultants and strategists who teach us how to get people to think the way they're supposed to think about us. I mean, Toyota got on national television, I forget, it was like a Super Bowl commercial or something, where they said, they, they, they apologized to the world, basically, for messing up in order to, to bring their integrity back up. You know, And there's consultants telling them, hey, this is how people are going to begin to trust you again. If the consultants and the strategists dealt with Jesus, they would have been pulling their hair out worse than Charlie Sheen's people are pulling their hair out. I mean, Jesus, in every moment when he was supposed to make a certain decision, he seems to make the other one. In chapter 1, there's this amazing moment in chapter 1 of Mark where Jesus goes early in the morning before it's light out and he goes to pray somewhere. And then the, the lights come up, you know, God brings the sun up in the sky again and all the people, it's like first thing in the morning, they're like, where's Jesus? And they start looking all around. His disciples go looking for him. They finally find him and they're like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe it. Everyone is looking for you. You're like the hottest thing, the next hottest thing. It's amazing. You know, like everyone is coming after you right now. This is what you've been looking for. You've been trying to build the kingdom of God and you have crowd appeal now. You have the forces behind you. Everyone thinks you're the man. Like go and do what you got to do. You know, like... Here's the moment. And Jesus, you know what he says? He says, I'm going to go to another town now. Okay, because there's other people who haven't heard the truth yet. And you can tell, like all the way through the Gospels, you can see that these apostles, and particularly Peter, are, is like, what are you thinking? Like, this is the moment. Capitalize on it. And you have the Simon the Zealot who was there, who you know, it's like, this is our chance. Come on, we can overthrow it all. And you have the revolutionaries who want to ride that train and all of that. And Jesus, every time that it's the, the critical moment, you watch him make a move that's bizarre. That seems like it's, it's not riding the train of momentum. It's almost as if there's this thing where he's purposely avoiding it. And people avoid momentum at times. They avoid the spotlight, sometimes because they don't want the responsibility. We know that's not true of Jesus. He takes massive responsibility, more than any of us ever have, and he continues to engage the responsibility even when he scorns crowd appeal. He still takes responsibility, so we know it's not that. But it's almost like he's like an undercover agent. I mean, like, he's going this way to help people out. And all of a sudden, there's this huge fame thing that comes up. And he just, like, does a spin move right around it and keeps going. And then he gets over here. And over here, all these people are like, oh, we're going to tell, tell about everything that Jesus just did. And he's like, don't tell him. And he cuts to the left. And he keeps going around him because he's got a goal in front of him. And all the fame and all the momentum will take him this direction or that direction or over here and over there. And instead of riding the momentum that all the people are giving him, he continues to avoid all the fame because he doesn't want to go down the path that they want him to go down because he has a bigger purpose. And the disciples continue to think, why don't you just use that momentum and get done what you want to? I mean, here's the deal. You have a product that's unbeatable. It's called eternal salvation. I mean, you have better motivation for selling your product than anyone could ever think of. It's the salvation of souls. I mean, honestly, Jesus, ride the momentum and use it for all it's worth to save the souls, you know? And he doesn't do it. He continues to make mind-boggling decisions that seem in the moment like just bizarre, b bizarrely bad choices, like LeBron James kind of choices, you know? Like, why would you do that? You have, the, you have what you need. Keep using it, but he doesn't. And he keeps going. There's three groups of people in this passage of Scripture who are worried about their image. One is King Herod. Two 
is the religious leaders of the day. Three is Jesus. And they all go different directions with it. What happens is, is Jesus, it starts off in, in chapter 6, verse 6, with Jesus taking his authority. You remember last week we talked about the authority? That we said that's so impressive about his authority is that he had to earn it by submitting to his Father. And the more he submits to his Father, the more he has the power of God flowing through him, the power of his Father flowing through him. And because he empties himself and allows God to just work through him, and the Father to work through him. Um, now, here comes his disciples and he's trying to train them. And they don't earn the authority. He just gives it to them. There's this moment. I don't know how he does this. I have no idea how he does it. But he takes the ability to heal people, to cast out demons, and, and to preach the word with authority. And somehow he just takes it outside of himself and he puts it on them. And all of a sudden, like the, it was like we were praying all the time and it wasn't working. And now this time, Jesus said all of a sudden we have authority. And I went over and touched this person and all of a sudden they were healed. You know, I don't know how he does that. But he does it. And he gives them his authority. Now the thing is here that's bizarre about this is this is what Jesus has to offer. You remember last week we talked about how people were consistently amazed at Jesus? Amazed at his teaching because it was with authority. Amazed that he had authority over the demons. Amazed that he had the authority to heal people. Amazed, amazed, amazed at all his authority. And yet in this moment, he takes the thing about him that's amazing. And somehow he gives it to other people. Now what if all of a sudden LeBron James took all of his athletic talent and gave it to like 15 people in the league? What happens to LeBron's stock? It goes down, right? Because now there's more people who have the same ability. He's not as special. What's more is, is Jesus in this moment is teaching about the kingdom of God and these guys didn't earn it. They don't know how to steward it right. So chances are they're not going to use that authority right and they're actually going to mess it up and muddy it a little bit. It's not a good PR move. And yet he does it because he's on mission. And his mission is about image. But it's not about his own image. It's about the image of his dad being branded on his followers. He wants the apostles to be branded by the image of God. And the only way it's going to work is if he learns to teach, if he gets to teach them dependence on God. So this is what starts happening. Now, listen, this is what happens next. Herod all of a sudden, the scriptures tell us a story about Herod. And it's kind of random. What it says is, it says that Herod started to fear that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. Why did Herod think that John the Baptist, why was he all paranoid and thought that John the Baptist was reincarnated in Jesus? Anybody know? Yeah, he offed him. Yeah, exactly. He was the one who, who took him out. Herod, the king, this is what he did with this is what he did with John the Baptist, okay? He actually liked John the Baptist, the scriptures tell us. He respected him. He thought he was a pretty impressive guy. And yet, his image was being rocked because what had happened was he had a, a brother who had this wife who he really liked. And so he took his brother's wife and she became his wife. And John the Baptist, being the straight shooter, the good guy and the prophet that he is, says to Herod, that's not okay. You can't do that. And he sticks his neck out. Well, that doesn't go well when, you know, the, the politician is trying to keep his image up. So what's he do? He keeps him quiet and shuts him up in a prison. At the same time, he actually respects the guy and believes that this guy's a straight shooter, and so he doesn't want to kill him. And so he just kind of keeps him in prison. Problem is, Herod still has an image to upkeep. So he throws this big party, okay? 
And he has this big posh party and it has all gourmet food and has all these fine wines and he brings all the dignitaries and he's showing them just the time of their lives, okay? So that they think that Herod's the man. And then he brings in the crown jewel of his entertainment, which is his new wife, his brother's old wife. It's her daughter comes in and starts dancing. And she must have been a great dancer. She would have been like the finalist in American Idol or whatever. And I guess it would be the X Factor or I don't know, whatever it is for dancing. And she puts on a show. And at the end of it, everyone's impressed. And so Herod stands up in front of all the people. And he's like, that was a great show, young lady. I'll give you anything you want in my kingdom, just name it, you know? And he's a big, tough guy at this point, you know, with so much money, he can just throw it around and I'll give her whatever she wants. And so she goes and talks to her mom and her mom didn't feel the same way about John the Baptist that Herod did because uh, she didn't care about John the Baptist. She hated him. She felt scorned by his words. And so she said, we want John's head on a platter right now. So now he's got a choice to make. He respects this guy. And he knows he should let him live. And yet he's just built an image all over the place. And the crowd is up and the momentum is going and the brand of Herod is moving forward. And everyone's like, this guy's the man. And he just stood up and said he'd give her anything she wants. And now she asks for something that he doesn't want to give her. So what does he do? He has a choice to make. He either follows the momentum or he does what's right. And he chooses to follow the momentum and to ride the political game. And so John the Baptist is killed. So now he's paranoid. And so now when Jesus is healing with power, he, you can feel it inside of him. He gets scared because he made the wrong decision in order to ride the momentum. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he uh, does something different. At the same time that this all happened, his disciples come back from the mission that he sent them on. And they're all geeked up. They're all excited because they were casting out devils and healing people and all this stuff. And in another gospel, in Luke, we hear Jesus say to them, don't get all excited about that stuff happening. Don't let your head get too big. Let's go take some R&R. Jesus had, you know, he had just lost John the Baptist. The the, uh, disciples needed to debrief and learn what it's really all about. So he takes them out into the wilderness for some R&R, some R&R. And they take a boat across the lake. But before they get to the other side, Everyone else has figured out that Jesus is going to be over there. And so somehow they're all already there waiting for Jesus. I mean, the drawing power of Jesus is unbelievable. You think about this. He took a boat to get across the lake. They ran around the lake and got there before he did. I mean, he's bigger than the Beatles, you know, honestly. I mean, it's like they're screaming and hollering. We want, and you can understand why. Because it's not just some rock star. This is a guy who heals people, you know. He teaches us the things about ourselves that we don't see. He's giving us like spiritual word. He has mass appeal. And so they show up and this is the moment where, you know, you got to get a break. And so all the uh, strategists at this point would say to Jesus, no, man, take a retreat. You got to get away. Go to Camp David. Take it easy a little bit, you know. And uh, so he gets to the other side, but he sees these people and he says they're like a sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. And so he starts to teach them. And all day long he teaches them. And he gets to the end of the time where he's teaching them. He gets to the end of the day and his disciples say to him, they're like, Jesus, these people are hungry. You know? Send them away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and buy something to eat. Jesus remembers. These guys just came off of this profound missions trip 
where they leaned into Jesus. They leaned into the Father, and they took no money, they took no extra clothes, they took no bag, and God provided for them the whole time. And so their faith should be growing at this moment. So Jesus challenges them. You know what Jesus has in mind for these guys is to be shepherds, right? I mean, the the idea is he wants them to be leaders, and he's training them, and this is his mission, is to get God imprinted on them. So what he says to them in this moment is is he takes them and he says, you feed them. You feed them. And they look around at each other and they're like, he's crazy. You know how much money it would take to feed these people? And they completely miss the point. I mean, the people already had money to eat, didn't they? Otherwise, they wouldn't have said, send them to the surrounding villages so that they can buy food. They already have money. They don't need money. Jesus is challenging them to something higher. They completely miss it as we would have completely missed it. And so then Jesus says, have all the people sit down. And he has them all sit down. And then he begins to take five loaves and two fishes and he just starts to break them and put them in these baskets and they take the food around and distribute it to to 5,000 men and women and children on top of that. And they all eat their fill and they come back and there's 12 baskets left over of food. And they come back and I, I have a feeling that everyone is just like watching this thing unfold and you're never actually seeing something miraculous happen. It's almost like, you know, you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and the tulips bloomed and you're like, what just happened? You know, and it's like, How in the world did we all just eat? We didn't see it happen, but something crazy just happened. And the energy that was in the crowd had to be unreal. I mean, what the scriptures don't tell us is exactly what the crowd's response was, but it gives us all the indications that the crowd was going bonkers. And here are the two big indications. First of all, he takes his disciples and he says, get on the boat and get out of here. Because he's trying to teach them. And he helped them and empowered them to take care and feed these people. But at this point, they're not going to know how to handle the response. So he puts them on the boat and tells them to take off. Then he has to stay behind because he has to dismiss the crowd. Because what's about to happen is a messianic riot. There's going to be a storm of people at this point. The symbolism in this moment, it's like manna from heaven where God in the wilderness feeds the people of Israel and Jesus spoke all day with authority and now he just took bread and he broke it and he gave it to all of us and we all ate. And can you imagine what would happen to us right now if that happened? Can you imagine what would happen inside of us? And the people, they start to pulsate. They've been yearning for the Messiah. And right here and right now, in front of their eyes, they're convinced they know this is Him. And Jesus sends the disciples on the boat and He locks down the momentum and He won't let it go forward because He knows that His time is not yet because His Father hasn't ordained it. And so He dismisses the crowd and somehow calms them down. It took as much supernatural authority to calm them down as it did to feed them all because they were so excited, I guarantee you. And he somehow dismisses them all. And you know what the next thing he does is? Is he goes and prays. And in the book of Mark, there's these three strategic moments where Jesus goes and prays. And all three of them are the obvious moments when it would have been so easy for Jesus to be tempted to go ahead of God and to just take the thing by storm in that moment. And it would have been so easy in that moment to ride the momentum and to build the kingdom off of this magnificent moment where the crowd is around and he did the miraculous, but he dismisses them because his job is not to ride the momentum or to get the hype. His job is to imprint the image of God on 12 men so that they can change the world. It's his job. And he knows his mission and he stays on target. This is how it goes, okay? (laughs) 
One of the most amazing moments ever happens in the middle of the night. Jesus gets done praying. They're out on the boat headed back, and and Jesus starts to walk on the water. Now, if you're his agent, you're just going nuts now because he pulled his best move in the middle of the night with no one watching, you know? And you're like, he just moonwalked on the water and no one saw it, you know? Great. It's an agent's worst nightmare, you know? And, uh, And they get to the other side together and he's teaching them about faith the whole time. And they get to the other side and the apostles decide it's time to eat. And so they grab the food and they start shoveling the food in and they don't wash their hands. Now, Enter the third and last group of people who are concerned about image. The religious leaders are there and they watch the whole thing. And this is the passage that we just read. And they get all bent out of shape because the apostles, because the apostles didn't wash their hands. Now, they don't care about their hygiene. They don't care if they're going to get, you know, dirt. It's, it, they have this religious thing. It's like a custom. It's a tradition. It's like you're not clean and you're not godly if you don't wash your hands and purify yourself before you eat. That was their custom. We have all sorts of social conventions, don't we? We have all sorts of social conventions. And so often we hold back on doing what God wants us to do because of the social conventions. And what happens here is Jesus is like, I don't really care about the social conventions. As a matter of fact, and he stares right at these guys who were of highest influence in his country, and he looks at them right in the eye, and he says, you know what? Isaiah told us about you in the scriptures. You're going to honor me with your lips, and yet your hearts are going to be far from me. Your worship of God is completely in vain. Completely in vain. He goes up to the most influential people around, and he confronts them. Now, if you're trying to build a movement, if you're trying to build a business, if you're trying to raise your brand, last thing you want to do is take all the people who are in power and make them mad at you. Jesus doesn't really seem to care. And what happens in this moment is he says, it's the inside that matters, not the outside. And he tells these religious leaders, you've worked so hard at living by the social convention. Worked so hard at portraying yourself, branding yourself, as spiritual, holy, religious people. And yet when I watch your lives, I see your hearts. Because I see what comes out of your lives. And it's not good. It's not God in the middle. doesn't matter how you look to everyone else. doesn't matter how you brand yourself. I see you for who you really are. And I see what's coming out of your life. And it's not good. Those are harsh words to the big influencers. Jesus is bold. He's willing to take the risk of what they'll do to him and ultimately pay the price for it. Herod gets popular, gets drunk, gets wild, gets self-indulgent, gets big, starts to ride the momentum and loses his ability to make right decisions. The religious leaders are cool, calm, collected, in charge, know their image, keeping their stuff together. Karl Rove and everyone else telling them how to keep it together, you know, showing their image. They have it. It's tight. And yet they cannot keep their hearts in the right place. There's only one hero. There's only one. There's only one in this whole scene who doesn't care what anyone else thinks. There's only one. There's only one who doesn't care so much about marketing, but watches every word. Who cares deeply about branding, but not branding his own name, but branding the image of his father on his followers. There's only one who can handle the pressure and still do the right thing. And it's Jesus. And there is no name under heaven whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. I mean, he branded his name in my heart as I read the stories again 
this week. You know, in the moment, he was loved and then hated and praised and then crucified and it was all over the map because people didn't know how to deal with him. But looking back 2,000 years later, he didn't need an agent. He needed people who would submit to him and follow him. And that's what we want to do, is we want to submit to him and follow him. Because in the moment, there's only one who doesn't cave. Herod will cave. Peter will cave. The religious leaders will cave. You and I will cave. But he doesn't cave. He just doesn't. Never, ever, ever. He doesn't sell out. And his decisions look so peculiar because he's the one who doesn't sell out. That's someone worth following, isn't it? That's our God. He's worth following. Let's praise him.